Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this week's episode, Kim Sobey examines a poem written by a man about love from a woman's perspective and questions, in what ways might a composer's gender play out musically? In this episode, I will discuss three different musical settings of a selection from Chamiso's poetry cycle, Frauenliebe und Leben, which translates in English to A Woman's Love and Life. Two settings are composed by contemporaries of the poet, Robert Schumann and Karl Löwe. The third is by a contemporary Connecticut-based composer, Elizabeth R. Austin. As I reference the original German texts throughout my analysis, I will follow with the translation. By examining these settings, I aim to challenge how gender influences composition. Specific adjectives used to qualify musical content are in the binary masculine versus feminine perception. For example, the word strong implies a masculine energy, whereas sensitive implies feminine. We applaud male composers like Johannes Brahms, whose music can be described with both words, but are more derisive towards female composers like Ethel Smythe, who are criticized for any indication of a masculine nature within their compositions. But do these adjectives align with the text found in art song? Does this change based on the text used? The challenge I see that pervades my research is that these assumptions can be irrelevant and incorrect. As a singer and as a collaborative pianist, I have always found great joy in performing art song. The nuance and sensitivity required of both singer and pianist in order to bring both music and character to life offer me a singular opportunity to explore the works and interpret them not only as an analyst, but also as a performer. In my work as a collaborative pianist, I have had the privilege of performing both the Schumann and Loewe settings. This synthesis of my training affords me the opportunity to analyze song in a very intimate and personal way. The poetry cycle, Frauenliebe und Leben, was written in 1830 by Adalbert von Chamiso, a German poet and botanist. Chamiso wrote mostly for and about the German middle class, Therefore, we can assume that the woman for whom he is writing is middle class. Though I am only showing one poem of this cycle, much more of Shimizo's poetry entails the subject of women of age to be married and overbearing fathers. At the time, his poems were not seen as controversial like they are today, and he was, in fact, more liberal than many men of his time. Though much can be said about German history in the early 1800s, I would like to provide a brief explanation of the political reform. In 1817, university students formed patriotic groups known as Burschenschaften and were agitated by the necessity for political change, but they were shortly outlawed as they presented a challenge to German rulers. The ideas of political reform had arisen in Germany as imitations of foreign examples, such as the July Revolution of 1830 in France, and in reaction against foreign oppression. The rise of the Liberal Party, made up of industrialists, merchants, financiers, mine owners, railroad developers, civil servants, professionals, and university professors, represented a protest to the conservative party made up of the bourgeoisie. More to the left of the Liberals, the Democrats sought to transfer the power of the crown to a parliament elected by universal male suffrage. 
less influential than the Liberal Party, they were willing to concede to a governmental regulation of business as a means to improve the economic conditions of the lower class. Women, not to be included in an elected party, were seen as inferior to men. The legal system, societal attitudes, and behavioral norms, along with prevalent philosophical ideals and the cultural isolation of Germany, supported the culture of male supremacy. You can see this impact on women in the roles they were allowed to play as housewives and bearers of children and the overwhelming attitudes that women were weak, emotional, and dependent on men. The premise of first-wave German feminism revolved around the political common good, including social justice and family values, mirroring the liberal and democratic parties. Additionally, it also targeted women's autonomy, which did not exist. These women were connected by a humanist aspiration to be identified and respected as full individuals. In 19th century Germany, children above the age of five, as well as unmarried adult women, were the legal property of their fathers, not both parents. Parents shielded their daughters to prevent them from growing up too quickly and discouraged them from reading. Once married, however, they were allowed to read poetry and anthologies along with their religious texts. Women were taught to sacrifice themselves in every way, to live a life of service, and always stay at home. When men went out to socialize, women were tasked with caretaking and housework. Brides were to look up to their fiancés as they were financially dependent upon them and their professional successes. Women also married men much older, as the men were assumed to take on military responsibilities or education during their young adulthood. Shimizo's wife, in fact, was 22 years younger. All of this factors greatly into the cycle of Shimizo's poetry. This cycle may have been written and inspired by his young wife, and perhaps his idea of her feelings for him. Recent scholarship has written about the problems with this text as a whole cycle. These poems are a masculinist projection about feminist subjectivity. A challenge arises as the male author chooses to write the woman as a subordinate creature whose life only exists for a man's purpose. In the examples you will hear, my goal is to show how a male composer, as opposed to a female composer, can approach this projection through their own lived experiences. For this podcast episode, I am choosing to focus on analysis of the second poem, Er de Herrlichste von Allen, or He is the Most Wonderful of All. I will now read the text translated by Richard Stokes, author of Book of Leader. He, the most wonderful of all, how gentle and loving he is. Sweet lips, bright eyes, a clear mind, and firm resolve. Just as there in the deep blue distance that star gleams bright and brilliant, so does he shine in my sky, bright and brilliant, distant and sublime. Wander, wander on your way, just to gaze on your radiance, just to gaze on, in humility, to be but blissful and sad. Do not heed my silent prayer, uttered for your happiness alone. You shall never know me, lowly as I am, you noble star of splendor. Only the worthiest woman of all may your choice elate, and I shall bless that exalted one many thousands of times. Then shall I rejoice and weep. Blissful, blissful shall I be, even if my heart should break. Break, O oh heart, what does it matter? From the 21st century lens, it is difficult not to interpret blatant misogyny throughout this poem. She states that he is in my heaven, bright and glorious, lofty and distant. In comparing him to a star, Shimizo insinuates that, to her, he is unattainable. 
In the last two stanzas, she prays for his well-being and the happiness of the woman he will pick, even if her heart breaks, and in doing so, she prioritizes his happiness above her own. She places this man on a pedestal and deems herself unworthy of him. This woman is self-sacrificing and assumes that he will choose another, more fortunate, woman. She characterizes him as someone above her, someone more lofty than she, and this is shown in the settings by Carl Löwe and Robert Schumann. In comparing the settings by Löwe and Schumann, I immediately noted some compositional similarities, which are characteristic of this time period. These similarities include the construct of the vocal line in relationship to the accompaniment, the use of sequences, and the manner in which they conclude the song. I would like to direct our listening to three similarities between the Löwe and Schumann settings. These are the accompaniment figures, use of sequences, and the conclusions. Let us first consider the opening stanza. Here is the setting by Löwe. To guide yourself through this excerpt, listen to the relationship of the vocal line to the accompaniment as well as the accompaniment itself. Right away, there is a horn call in the right hand of the accompaniment, which is reminiscent of a martial style. In the accompaniment, the arpeggiated line doubles the vocal part, and the punctuated chords mimic a drumbeat. Rufus Hallmark comments that this may literally portray the man as a soldier, but at least invest him with the masculine virtues a military figure might be thought to symbolize. The military references immediately establish masculinity and authority. Löwe's militaristic quality is similar in the Schumann setting, especially with the arpeggiation of the vocal line and steady eighth note rhythm in the accompaniment, though slightly less obvious than the use of a horn call. Schumann's setting employs an arpeggiation of the initial vocal entrance and a steady eighth note rhythm, similar to Löwe's. Let's listen to this. With the text, so gentle, so good, there is a stark contrast. This moment of change may represent the tenderness of the man, as opposed to his only lordly qualities. Though the accompaniment is stereotypically Schumann in that it has an independent piano accompaniment that supports, but does not mirror the vocal line exactly. It again has an air of masculine power and militaristic forward motion. In his setting, Schumann gives the man slightly more dimension than Löwe in this initial stanza, still emphasizing his strength, but also showing benevolence. The second point I want to highlight is the use of sequences in both of the settings I have discussed thus far. Consider Schumann's setting of the third stanza, beginning with the text Wandle, Wandle deine Bahnen. The translation of this stanza reads, Wander, wander on your way, just to gaze on your radiance, just to gaze on in humility, to be but blissful and sad. Wandle, wandle deine Bahnen, nur mit Wacht in deinen Schein. Wandle, wandle deine Bahnen, nur mit Wacht in deinen Schein. 
Schumann changes the vocal line here from his arpeggiated figures heard in earlier stanzas to an ascending second sequence with rising notes in the left hand from scale degree 1 to scale degree 4. He uses the voice leading of this passage to create deeper meaning within the text. For example, he uses a 6-5 suspension, that is a voice leading technique, in which the melody has a sixth above the bass that steps down to a fifth, as a practical way to break up parallel fifths, but also to create a downward gesture, one that might be interpreted as a sigh. The music then reverses the direction of the sequence on the word demut, or humility. I interpret this as a rise of the women's feelings, where she may show a little hesitation. The music highlights sadness as it denies the leading tone resolution to tonic on the text Zelish Nur. This evaded cadence leaves the music hanging without proper closure, like that of the woman's feelings. The prior change of direction on the word humility is indicating the highest place she is able to put herself, then acknowledging her inferiority and accepting her presumed fate to be sad. This is immediately followed by the arpeggiated figure of triumph. Let's listen to this excerpt again, keeping this narrative in mind. In the Löwe example, he also employs a sequence here. His is an ascending second sequence in the fourth stanza on the text Höre nicht mein stilles Beten. This stanza reads, Do not heed my silent prayer, uttered for your happiness alone. You shall never know me lowly as I am, you noble star of splendor. There is an interruption before he sets Hoher Stern der Herrlichkeit twice. In fact, we can hear two interruptions. First, the cadence is weakened to an imperfect authentic cadence in D, which is quite a foreign key relation compared to the home key. The second cadence is a perfect authentic cadence, however, it is in the key of A major, the subdominant key of the song. Let's listen to this. Löwe's rising sequence, unlike Schumann's, portrays less doubt and instead shows her praising this man. Löwe continues to portray the man as powerful and authoritative. The repetition of You Noble Star of Splendor reinforces the idea that he is far above her and that she is unworthy of him. The choice to employ a sequence on this stanza, as opposed to Schumann's sequential motion on the prior stanza, emphasizes her inferiority and implied deferential attitude. The final point I would like to examine is the conclusion of this song. Schumann repeats the first stanza in almost exact repetition of the first iteration, though this time he ends with a PAC on the tonic chord of E-flat major. He then writes a four-measure extension outlining augmented sixth chord, followed by a cadential 6-4 cadence to the tonic that features rising chromaticism in the inner voices. This may be the bubbling excitement of the woman in the possibility of her being selected by this man. 
This excitement is evident in the inner chromaticism and the ascent. Schumann shows him to be strong yet compassionate, reinforced by the harmony. This differs greatly from the end of Löwe's setting. He sets the text all the way through with no repetition and ends with the words, even if my heart should break, break, O heart, what does it matter? Repeating the line, even if my heart should break. He again employs an ascending sequence, but before his PAC in E major to end the song, he is a quasi-plagal figure using C natural, the first time he has written any figure in a minor tonal center. Let's listen to how the repetition of the text and mode mixture of the minor inflected C natural creates an interesting setting rich with interpretive potential. Leuve's ending exposes the woman's doubt for the first time, as up until this point, her vocal line has shown only her admiration and devotion to the man. The mode mixture of C natural may represent that she may be questioning what her life would be like with or without him, and that while she has said that she will be happy for the woman he picks, she may not mean that, according to Leuve. I aim to challenge what can make musical qualities perceived as masculine versus feminine. In this case, the male's perspective of the female character and how a woman's interpretation may differ. I'd like to now turn to just that, a female composer's perspective. As heard, Lerva and Schumann characterized the man as strong and virile through the use of militaristic accompaniment and restrained vocal writing. I had the privilege of meeting with Dr. Elizabeth R. Austin to discuss this work, the trajectory in her musical career, and her desire to set this poetry. She recently sat with me for an interview, from which I am delighted to share excerpts. The full interview will be available for those who would like to listen, which goes more in-depth into Austin's background and journey to composition. Most of Austin's compositions are for voice, and I was curious why this may be. Listen now to her describing her thoughts about this. So you've written for all different types of ensembles. What is so special about writing for the voice? We talked about this a little bit off off mic, um, but that you're really driven by the poetry that that you read. Well, and... yes, not only the poetry. Uh, I need to be brave enough to uh, write a piece just on awe because mm. the voice to me is inseparable from our heartbeat. Uh, when we take a breath, we can feel our heartbeat in what is more intimate especially for other ears, for the listener's ears, when you hear the breathing in and out. Mm. And so I have always been, I must say, partial uh, to writing for the voice. And then when you couple it with uh, remarkable poetry, 
Rilke comes to mind, Sandberg comes to mind, that immediately gives one the incentive and the motivation through the words. There is also the obvious difference between her setting and the other settings discussed, her gender. I wonder how her experience as a woman led her to setting these texts. Let's listen to our discussion. The Shimizo texts are very interesting, um, especially looking at them in a 21st century lens. Um, What led you to set them? Well, I am a woman. And the Shimizo was only set by men. Mm -hmm. And here was Schumann and uh, et al. And I thought, hmm, this perhaps is a... a little skewed. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, I was write, reading a remarkable book uh, by an Austrian authoress. Her name was Ingeborg Bachmann. And she wrote a novel called Malina. Uh, Malina was also made into a movie. And this was the story of a woman trying to find herself in love with her companion. But it is so suggestive as how inferior she felt when one of the scenes in the story, she walks through a wall, for instance. It's a fabulous story. And this right away set me to thinking about, do we have a dependency? And now uh, you are a so-called modern contemporary (laughs) woman, but this whole The facet is changing, Mm -hmm. the relationship uh, of a woman towards men and so on, as as I'm sure you can uh, think about. But this is really what led me to setting the text, is that I felt that the woman's voice needed to be heard. I will now play a complete recording of Elizabeth's setting, performed by the two of us. Thank you. 
I'd like to now compare the points I discussed earlier from the Schumann and Löwe settings to hers. Austin likes to use musical quotations, and we see this immediately in the first entrance. Let's hear her talk about her approach to this. So I wanted to talk a little bit now about your compositional style and about um, specifically the the second piece, Er de Helichte von Allen. So um, the the relationship between the accompaniment and the vocal line is is really interesting. Um, and so uh, to me, what makes the setting of the text different than that of Löwe and Schumann is the expression and the identification of this woman's anxiety and doubt, especially in the accompaniment. Um, can you elaborate on that a little? Well, exactly, because it is called accompaniment. And the women, the woman is supposed to be hiding internally her anxiety. Mm-hmm. In a way, you could equate the piano, uh, which, of course, with a great art song, it should be equal right. in value. And so, but this always shows, as far as I'm concerned, when I write songs, uh, what can't be expressed in words, and that is the attitude the mental state of the singer. She can do her best, but she can't, or he, can't move around the stage very much. And so the composer has got to set up uh, an accompaniment, which really may show a dichotomy. For instance, in these uh, songs, uh, number two, oh, he's the most wonderful of all. she goes on about how this man is is just absolutely wonderful. However, when one plays the accompaniment, the piano, you feel a little bit of trembling, a little bit of stuttering even. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have this dichotomy. Austin uses more word painting than the previous two settings. For example, on the text So wie dort in blauer Tiefe, hell und herrlich, jener Stern, translated as Just as there in the deep blue distance, that star gleams bright and brilliant. She dips into the lower register of the soprano, and then the accompaniment rises on the word Stern, or star. 
whereas Schumann changes the accompanimental figure at the words Vandle, Vandle deine Bahnen, heard earlier, Austin writes a descending arpeggio to B3, a note at the bottom of most sopranos' comfortable register. Translated as wander, wander on your way, she is showing her lowly nature before the vocal line rises to praise him for his radiance. The highest pitch of the song comes at the text Nur in Demut ihn betrachten, or Look at Him with Humility, first outlining a B major 7th chord. The section wherein this occurs has the marking of emotionally detached, which seems to enforce the idea of the woman's humility and feelings of unworthiness. The vocal line requires not only technical ability from the performer, but symbolizes an internal strength not evident from the restrained male perspective. The presentation of this line is unexpected and may also show the juxtaposition of her feelings of anxiety, but also admiration of the man. What I believe to be the climax of the piece comes at nur die würdigste von allen, or only the most wonderful of all. The woman truly believes that there is no one better than this man, and she will continue to say that, with sadness, she will support his ultimate choice and bless that person a thousand times. Here, with a change of tempo, there is a wistful and mournful quality to the line, as Austin continues to employ staccato 16th notes in the accompaniment. This dichotomy shows almost a sense of madness, where the woman in the song shows that she hopes to be selected woman with a continued sense of anxiety. Austin's work does share some similarities with the settings of Löwe and Schumann, mainly the mood expressed at the end of the Löwe in the quotations of Schumann. However, her treatment of musical motive and expression seems to highlight a more nuanced emotional experience of the woman in the song. Austin's ending is more similar to the Löwe, where she employs a minor sixth on the text Brich o Herz, was liegt daran, or Break o Heart, what does it matter, showing doubt and hesitation. Similar to the Schumann with a coda, Austin ends with the return of the staccato accompaniment with the markings nervous, hesitant. Throughout the song, the woman's doubt and anxiety is displayed through her sweeping and chromatic vocal lines, as well as the ironic accompaniment. Austin uses her compositional technique of combining sixth and thirds throughout the piece to create this feeling of emotional turmoil and tonal instability. Let's listen to her describe her compositional use of minor thirds and sixths. So the other thing that I wanted to mention, um, so I read a transcribed interview that you did with Michael Slayton. Um, and so he was talking about uh, with you about pitch class cells and then the specifically the way that you use minor sixths and then minor thirds. Um, and we're going to have an example of that. But um, can you talk kind of about how you view that, how it works and um, becomes yes. part of it? Well, of course, with all uh, contemporary composers, one examines serial music, one examines 12-tone music, and you also examine how this was used tonally. I know Alban Berg, uh, a real hero of mine, uh, wrote in many... Uh, it not the hierarchy of tonal music, but it sounded tonal, although he was using set music or 12 tone. Uh, I have really been influenced by Bela Bartok, and he doesn't have a so-called system, but uh, he does have major uses of the sixth and the thirds. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, they are the sweetest, most precious of the intervals. Mm -hmm. 
and it maybe can be borne out by their position in the harmonic series, in the overtone uh, system, where they get their repeats as one goes up the overtone system, one can find thirds and sixths being um, produced mm -hmm. uh, rather early on. And so, of course, we're trying to ingratiate, to tempt, to uh, make sure the listener is, is drawn to the music. So we've got a thirds and a sixth, a minor third, a minor sixth. You keep on going and you get all 12 pitches in the octave. And so on. Put that together and you have 12 tones. I believe that this attention to text showing the woman's nervousness and desire to be selected by the man is more in line with a feminine perspective as opposed to the masculine, militaristic, and authoritative approaches by both men. Let's look at a few more examples. Austin uses a more traditionally masculine character and in doing so, she challenges the music gender stereotypes. Austin employs the following quasi-cadential figure at the end of the first and last stanzas. As you can hear, this is two perfect fourths separated by a step with a chromatic pitch to move from one to the other. With dotted rhythms, she does reference the militaristic sound of Schumann and Löwe. This may be an additional nod to those composers, but I think it additionally shows power within the woman herself. The woman in the song is praising him and then saying, let my heart break. This is followed by the anxious staccato 16th notes in the accompaniment, indicating to me that these are moments of resolve and understanding. In using a more traditionally masculine character, Austin challenges the musical gender stereotypes. Here, the woman is the focus, her feelings are explored more in depth, and she is multidimensional. In contrast to the text, Austin makes the woman a person with autonomy. While I believe that the Löwe setting in particular debilitates her, and the Schumann setting makes the man multidimensional, Austin places more emphasis on the woman and her character. There are some questions that I want to consider in the future for further research with the rest of the cycle. Is it fair to compare the settings because of the difference in tonal language? If this is not the case, is it still possible to see the more feminine side to Austin's setting? I believe that the overall structure in piano accompaniment employed by Austin shows, as I discussed, the anxiety of the woman in this situation. Taken at face value, it is possible to compare the overall masculine and martial sounds of the male settings with her setting, which highlights, with increased chromaticism and accompaniment, which provides subtext of the inner feelings of that woman. Austin is able to take this masculine projection about feminine subjectivity to reveal an interesting degree of ambivalence while she reworks the gender formations. In our contemporary culture, there is much to be said for female empowerment through the second and third waves of feminism and the current fourth wave in which we find ourselves. Still seeking equal rights and autonomy, there is still much work to do politically, especially in light of the Dobbs ruling by the Supreme Court. The transformation of this text from the two 19th century settings to the late 20th century setting shows a change in attitude and understanding of a woman's perspective. 
Through the engagement of this text, Austin eschews characteristically feminine sounds and shows an understanding of the contemporary woman, while Schumann and Löwe wrote for and about the woman they knew in their time period. Further examination of this cycle as a whole may present more challenges to musical gender norms, and I look forward to doing this with continued research and analysis. Before I conclude, I would like to end with one last excerpt from my interview. In posing a question about being a woman composer, Austin had this to say about the state of women in music. And so I have just one final question. We, we talked about your, your journey in composition and your, your journey as a musician, um, and then also being a woman to set these texts when you know, you're the only woman that has set them, to my knowledge. Um, so how do you feel about the increasing scholarship and support of female composers in the field? And do you feel like your work continues to help champion uh, women in composition? All right. The uh, second phrase of that, of that sentence I couldn't speak to. It's a little bit too, I'm going all shucks. You know? <laughs> I really am, am uh, hard pressed to acknowledge my role in this big universe of outstanding women composers, especially in America, you mm -hmm. think of. You yourself are really contributing to this, this fact that you are doing your doctoral studies and very nicely uh, are asking uh, me about my settings. I really appreciate this. I'm hoping that gender differences continue to not play such an element, just as I would say racial differences. And I really feel that women have now produced such scholarly and remarkable and works of genius that I, I'm hoping that that whole gender line is getting very smeary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would be remiss if I did not thank the many people who aided in this podcast recording. Firstly, my utmost thanks to Elizabeth R. Austin for agreeing to be interviewed, to record with me, and to provide great insight into her music. Secondly, I would like to thank Meredith Ziegler for her beautiful recordings of the Schumann and Löwe examples. Thank you goes to Dr. Peter Kaminsky, who encouraged this work through an independent study. Additional thanks go to Aaron Cherry for his work in recording my interview and text, my reviewer, Dr. Amy Simony, for her wonderful and thoughtful work, and Hilary Walker and Shannon Rose McAuliffe for their meticulous editing. Lastly, I would like to thank the SMT Pod Board, in particular Dr. Jennifer Beavers and Dr. Megan Lyons, for their support of my work. The land on which Yukon stands is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Shattuckoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations despite atrocities and persecution. I thank them for their strength and resilience in protecting this land and aspire to uphold my responsibilities according to their example. Visit our website, smt-pod.org, for more information related to this episode, including the full interview between Kim and Elizabeth Austin, and learn how to submit an episode proposal. Join in on the conversation by tweeting your questions and comments at smt underscore pod. SMT Pod's theme music was written by Zheng Cheng Lu with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening. <laughs>